You're listening to Review and Preview on Facebook Live. Hello, everybody. Good evening. Welcome to Review and Preview. I'm your host, Tom Scavetta, joined alongside Kyle Russo and James Montefusco. James, welcome back to the show. And thank you. I, I like this jersey you're wearing in honor of tonight. Yes, thank you. It was a, um, an old Brooklyn Dodgers jersey I found in my closet. Um, it looks pretty old. I couldn't tell you how old it is, but you know what? I figured since the Dodgers won the World Series, throw it back from where they originally started in Brooklyn. Might as well, right? It only took them 32 years. So, folks, uh, before we get too far into this tonight, let's just recap uh, on where you can find us on social media. You can follow our audio podcast on anchor.fm slash review and preview. Follow us on Facebook at review and preview sports. Like and subscribe. And then you can follow us on Instagram as well at review and preview. Guys, action packed show tonight. We are live. Half an hour earlier than usual, 6.30 to 8 p.m. We're going to recap the World Series. We'll talk about Kevin Cash's decision, Justin Turner with the COVID incident. Then we'll talk about our team of the week, the New York Jets, the Giants, preview their Tampa Bay matchup on Monday night. And then we have Gabe Flayton coming on the show to talk some NFL stuff with us. That should be fun. And uh, the week seven loser of our NFL quick picks will be announced, and they will perform their punishment live. I like to call us a Halloween style punishment here tonight as Halloween is this weekend, guys. So, uh, you know, definitely looking forward to it. Yeah, I'm looking forward to everything we got planned. Uh, definitely miss seeing you guys. Uh, but with the cold weather that came, Bocce has ended. So, <laughs> yeah, Even you, uh, you gold chain wearing stallions can't uh, withstand that weather at this point. So definitely happy to have you back. And James, so um, I don't know where you guys want to start. I mean, I know we left off at game two last week, Kyle, but um, let's just quickly recap how this game went to six games. It was a back and forth series, and a lot of people thought it would go to game seven, right? And then last night in game six, we see, uh, you know, the Rays get to an early one nothing lead. I figure we'll start here, and then we'll go through the rest of the series after. If that's cool with you guys. Yeah. So it's a Rosa Reina hitting a solo home run in the first inning. Great. You know, Rays are up one nothing, and, you know, a lot of people are thinking this could possibly go to a Game 7. It's Blake Snell on the mound, and if I'm not mistaken, I think the Dodgers went bullpen style last night with Gonsolin out there. It was kind of like a relief-style game. Dodgers had seven pitchers out there, and, you know, it was just crazy because Snell was cruising into the sixth inning, and then uh, Kevin Cash decided to pull him. I believe he gave up a hit. I'm trying yeah. to remember to who it was, but Snell was only at 73 pitches, gave up no runs, two hits, had six strikeouts. Now, I, think hit Mookie. I think it was a hit to Mookie. Was it Mookie? No, I think Mookie no. was coming up. I Mookie was coming up. Was, the hit was, was to Barnes. Yeah, it was their ninth uh, ninth guy. Okay, so that was, uh, yeah, that was Austin Barnes. The catcher, yeah. So mm-hmm. let, let's just get right into it. Like, I mean, obviously, I think we all agree on this, but – um, did Kevin Cash cost the Rays a World Series? I'm not going to say Kevin Cash. I'm going to say 
the GM of the Tampa Bay Rays because it's all about how you run your organization. And we see with a lot of teams in baseball, they're running their organization with analytics. Now, Kevin Cash is a first-year manager. I don't think he has the authority to make that type of decision. I think it drops down from the top of the organization. That's how, it done. that's how it's done. I mean, I look at the Yankees, and that's how they're driven. A lot of people give Aaron Boone a lot of hate for the way he's managed games. And in some parts, it has been him. But not for one second you're going to tell me that there isn't any say from the front office, including Brian Cashman. It is. That's how teams are running their organizations, analytic base, and what they think is the best decision. But anybody with a set of eyeballs is not going to te- is going to tell me that going the analytical way would have been better in that situation, considering Blake Snell was having one of the best World Series pitching performances that at least I have ever seen. I mean, on pace to finish beautifully with seventy three pitches and already had nine Ks against a stacked, stacked Dodgers offensive lineup. There was no way that pulling him out was the best decision by any stretch of the imagination. But I will not blame Kevin Cash solely, considering that I don't think he was the one who necessarily had the authority to make that type of call. So, James, I want to hear from you as well. But do I think Cash deserves some of the blame? Yes, because you're a manager, you're in that position, and you know pretty much the whole world is calling for you. I mean, quite frankly, we even – I mean, look at all these uh, famous public figures that made comments. And the one that resonated with me the most was Dick Vitale. Uh, college basketball player and just remove that banner um here it is there we go i love kevin cash but come on 70 pitches dominant give me a break and you could just see him uh saying this verbally as well can you imagine a manager coming out and taking the ball from a tom Seaver, a gibson cole please snell is a cy young award winner so what are you guys' thoughts about that? I agree with Dick Vitale a hundred thousand percent. Just because you give up a hit and you have the meat of the meat of the order coming up, it doesn't mean that it's all trouble now. I mean, it's nearly impossible to be perfect as a baseball pitcher, regardless of how good you are. You could be DeGrom, you could be Cole, you could be Bauer, you could be Kershaw. There's no way to be perfect throughout the course of the game. Um, it's very rare that you see that happen. And not to mention the next three hitters. One, two, three, that could have scared Cash a little bit. But Betts, Seeger, and Turner, they were a combined 0 for 9 against Snell heading into uh, those potential at-bats against him. James, I want to hear from you now. Do you think that uh, – I mean, I know you were the one blowing up the group chat last night saying how awful of a move it was, but I, I want to hear from you specifically. What, what's going through your head? So – what, as once he gave up that hit, I'm like, all right, it's only your second hit. I looked at his pitch count. I'm like, he's pitching phenomenal. And then I think they showed up, showed a graphic like right before he got pulled or exactly right after he got pulled. I think it, Joe Buck even said the first three hitters, he had two K's on them. Like, I think all of them each had a strikeout, if not two strikeouts, because that was going to be the third time going through the lineup at that point. Um, so for the fact that Kevin Cash hold Blake Snell out. I'm kind of as a as a big sports fan, I'm like, are you kidding me? We all saw Blake Snell's reaction live on TV. He was not happy. He so I'm not going to repeat what he said because we can all read mouths. Mm-hmm. Um but I understand as Russo was saying, it's not all of Kevin Cash's fault. I understand where Tom's coming from. It's not all his fault either. Because ultimately, 
it probably does come from everybody upstairs and then it works the way the chain down. And usually when Tom Russo, we have seen this even with our own New York teams, when you come through a, through a lineup the third time, usually the players are able to start figuring you out, which fourth I get. Time. They were going, oh, the fourth time. All right. Yeah. Um, going through no, the fourth the third time. This was the third, was the third time. Was it? I thought they were 0 for 9 combined. No, this was his third time. Okay, th- uh, you're right. They were 0 for 6 combined. But still, you guys get the point. They didn't yeah. have a hit against them. So going through it for the third time, all right, they might figure them out. But at least let them face those batters. Because mm-hmm. if they're able to figure them out, then be like, okay, they figured him out. Now let's figure. Let's either talk to him or pull him. Let's not, right. after a second hit, give it up. Also, I think Joe Buck or um, the other announcer, I'm blanking on the name, uh, (laughs) um, that they even said that all the analytics are up on one of the big boards. So it's always in your face. Yeah. The Mm -hmm. game has turned to more of the analytics being like, all right, so Blake Snow is now going through the third part, the third time of the lineup, his percentage of having a success say goes down to 75 or 50%. I'm making these numbers up guys. Right. Um, they go down to this and then the guy they have up in the bullpen has say an 85 to 95% success rate against the next three hitters. Yeah. That's what they're looking at. They're like, okay, I have a bigger percentage chance of winning that way. We sort when we had our meeting on Monday night, I'm going to go a little off topic with football. We're all in these fantasy leagues that all go by percentages. Yeah. And we were watching that. And that's how sometimes we do our lineups ourselves. So to see the Rays take Blake Snell out, I feel bad for the guy because he wanted to leave everything on the field and he wasn't able to. Here's the problem too, right? If let's just say that Seager and Turner start moving down the order, they're getting on base against Snell. We're sitting here tonight making the exact opposite argument that Cash should have taken Snell out. However, Snell didn't give me personally enough evidence to prove that he should be removed from the game. I think if Betts gone on and then you removed him, maybe it becomes more acceptable. Yeah. Kyle, what's your what's your thought on that? I, I think that could be a potential argument. Maybe in for one more batter, but if he gets on, then you got to start at least entertaining the idea. You have to entertain it if Mookie Betts gets on. But back to my further my other point, this is how the Rays ran their organization all year. You know, we talked we talked about it last week, Tom. They got guys like Blake Snell, Tyler Glass now, Ryan Yarborough, and these guys are only going five innings. How are you only having during the regular season and postseason having a guy in Blake Snell going five innings? Mm-hmm. And at the same time, this was their bread and butter all season long. And that will be their defending point. This is what got us here. This is what they're gonna stick with. Now, is that stupid? Absolutely. Because, like I said before, Blake Snell was having a historic performance. He was having an unbelievable performance. And maybe they can cushion the blow a little bit by saying, oh, we were going to face the cream of the crop type of talent up at the top of that lineup in the Dodgers. You know, bring in another guy. But you bring in Nick Anderson, who's been struggling since the Yankees series, where he was bad against Houston. He wasn't good against the Dodgers in this World Series. And then the minute you take Blake Snell out of the lineup, this guy gives up a hit. It's 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 an awful, awful look. A terrible, terrible timing. I think it's more upon the decision of bringing in Nick Anderson instead of a guy like Pete Fairbanks, who was pitching unbelievably earlier. Yes, Pete Fairbanks gave up that home run to Mookie Betts. 
later on in the, I want to say, eighth inning. But he's been their guy. But he's been their best bullpen pitcher. Uh, Diego Castillo, he hasn't been good in this World Series. He hasn't been good since Houston. They've had a lot of lackluster performances. He's young. He's young, but they haven't had those same type of bullpen performances since the Yankees series, since the Houston series. And to go to Nick Anderson, who's been one of the worst ones out of all of them, after Blake Snell was was cooking up a show last night, he was he was making baseball entertaining to watch again. You were watching a guy go out there and almost throw a no hitter in a World Series game, and you pull him for for no other reason than analytics. That's that's what they'll that's what they'll die on. They'll die on the fact that the analytical stature said that Blake Snell should be pulled. So the eyeball test says no. When he was pulled, folks, the bottom of the sixth inning, Nick Anderson comes into the game. Tampa Bay's up one nothing, and then the, his first batter, I believe, was a wild pitch that ended up scoring Barnes. Then Seager ended up reaching on a fielder's choice, and then all of a sudden, you're down two to one. Yeah, and you go from up one to down one, which is never a good thing. Then in the bottom of the eighth inning, as Kyle alluded to before, Fairbanks is on the mound. Mookie Betts hits a solo home run, night-night, Rays, and then the Dodgers pretty much took it home from there. Um, It took the Dodgers seven pitchers, but I've got to say I was very impressed with the way they managed this game, considering they were down. And then once you're down in a game six against an underdog like that, the momentum starts to swing a little bit. And I personally think that the Dodgers showed a lot of good perseverance last night, and you got to give a lot of credit to – 23-year-old Julio Urias, who got a seven-out save, a guy who started a lot of games in the postseason. Uh, Two and a third, no runs, no hits, and four strikeouts. I mean, the last two hitters both struck out looking. That's how good Urias was last night. I mean, Kyle and James, I mean, the first hitter, I believe it was Brousseau, that he struck out looking. It was a fastball. Yeah. It was a fastball right down the pipe. Like, I understand it was an inside corner strike, but still, like, this just reminds me of the Mets, Beltron, and the 06 uh, NLCS, like, just looking at strike three. This is just an inexperienced team, I think, not knowing what to do in that situation. I think that – I think it all leads back. It all all comes back to that Snell move. And I was watching the Michael K. show earlier, and they had Alex Rodriguez on, and he said it perfectly. He goes, if you're a player on a team – and you see what happened, you're, you're basically saying to yourself or your manager is saying to his players and the people in the dugout that, hey, guys, I'm going to bank on a computer rather than I have faith in my own players. And that's, that is draining and annihilating to a group of guys who have been fantastic. They've been underdogs in every single series that they play, even in the Yankees series. People were picking the Yankees. Yes, you had your far and few were picking Tampa because they did finish off as one of the best teams in the AL. But the Yankees were looking like the better team. The Yankees had their own analytical cluster in game two where they decided to put Debbie Garcia in for one inning and then let J.A. Happ finish the job. And that ultimately, in my opinion, cost them the series. But that's draining for a team, and that kills them. I'm not saying on those last two strikeouts that's what happened. But to go down looking looking without swinging, that's – that's that's horrible. So horrible. with that, the Dodgers win their first World Series title in 32 years, uh, 1988, and their seventh ring in franchise history. Corey Seager named the World Series MVP and the eighth player to win the World Series and 
LCS MVP in the same year. He's also the first shortstop to win MVP since 2010. I mean, the guy deserves it. I mean, you really couldn't argue anybody else considering the way Seager was performing. 400 average, five ribbies in six games, couple home runs. Uh, and not to mention his NLCS stats were fantastic. Five homers, 11 RBIs. So right there, he clearly deserved to be it. I think the only other guys you could maybe like sprinkle in the discussion are Turner, Kershaw, who was 2-0 in the World Series, and then maybe Mookie Betts. But, I mean, Seager definitely deserved it. Uh, what do you guys think about Corey Seager and his overall performance in this World Series? Do you think he's that guy that can carry a team and the Dodgers are full of those guys? Or do you think this guy is like a, like a stud, like a star in this league? Because I feel like he's been a star for a little bit now. Well, a couple of years ago, if you remember, he was he was falling out of this Dodgers team. That's why they traded for uh, Manny Machado. And then when they went to the World Series and lost, Manny wanted up send, signing with the Padres because for the entirety of that season, I believe Corey Seager was out. Corey Seager was was done, and it looked like he had been replaced potentially. If the Dodgers won that World Series, I believe that Manny Machado would have been back, and we wouldn't even be talking about Corey Seager on the Dodgers at this point in time. And he resurrected himself. He had an unbelievable performance, and this is going to keep him in a Dodgers uniform for a long time. I couldn't be happier for the guy. If there was going to be a guy that was going to win the MVP, the only guy, like you said, Tom, Mookie was unbelievable. He was incredible, still in his first year. The only other guy that I would have liked to see the MVP go to was Clayton Kershaw, but I'm so happy that it went to Corey Seager. Well-deserved. So before we get to Justin Turner and that post-game celebration, let's recap the rest of the series quick and how we got here. I think it's important to know how we got to this point. So L.A., this series was back and forth. There was no team that won two games in a row until the last two games. So in game two, we saw a very similar situation. Uh, Blake Snell was on the mound. I thought he was pulled a little early, in my opinion. Uh, Went four and two-thirds, had nine strikeouts, and then... It was against Gonsolin again. Game two was basically a similar version to game six, except more runs were scored uh, pitching-wise. Dodgers used seven pitchers again. Uh, Lowe hit a nice solo home run, and he was really good in the series, too, for Tampa. Guys like Lowe, Wendell had a two-run double. Tampa Bay led, I believe they led 5 nothing in this game. And then the Dodgers, they just started to trickle on some runs. I believe they made it... And I want to say they made it five to four at one point, right? And then the uh, the Rays just stuck on one more because the Dodgers hit three home runs late. Just goes to show you their offense can click in the blink of an eye. And that's why they won this World Series. Even though the loss of game two, you still kind of saw it. You're like, wow, you know, this team really is good. And they could turn it on instantly, like the way the Chiefs did in the Super Bowl with Patrick Mahomes. Oh, yeah, no doubt. They, they, they've they been that type of team all season long. And, you know, I expect that to see that, you know, further on in the future. That they've been that good of a team. They've been a good team for a long time now. They've just finally developed into that team that's, you know, has overcome that hump. Yes, in Tampa's case, you haven't won the World Series yet. But again, you know, granted this era, we could be talking about a game seven, potentially. Yeah. And then in game three, I want to talk about two aces and Walker Beeler and Charlie Morton. Charlie Morton has been a fantastic postseason pitcher throughout his career. Uh, Walker Buehler was great, 10 Ks in six innings. And then Justin Turner hit a home run. He had a real good series. Max Muncy had a two-run single in game three. And then 
uh, the Dodgers were up early. You know, Mookie Betts, Barnes, everyone was chipping in on the hit parade. They were up 5 nothing, and then the Rays, they got a run, and then Barnes pretty much put it to bed with a home run late. Despite Arosa Arena in that game, the Rays' offense was pretty much non-existent, and you saw it a lot in this series. The Rays would have those games where they would score a lot of runs and others that they would just put a dud out there. Do we attribute this to, you know, the Dodgers top two and Beeler and Kershaw, or is it more of a product of the Rays' offensive inconsistencies because of how young they are in this lineup? I think it has to do with the Rays' inconsistencies in this lineup. Uh, I, I think it's solely on that, just because you can make the argument and you could say Walker Bueller and Clayton Kershaw, but going into this World Series, you know, just a week ago, everybody was knocking Clayton Kershaw and said he was going to be the reason why they were going to lose the World Series. Yeah. And here's a guy that, besides Corey Seager, probably should have won the MVP mm-hmm. for the World Series because of how great he performed. So I wouldn't make that argument that it had to do with the top two. Yes, Clayton performed unbelievably. Walker performed great. But the Rays had a lot of opportunities, even in this game last night. You know, we're talking about how Kevin Cash blew the game for the Rays. Even if he kept Blake Snell in, you weren't going to win the game one nothing. most likely. That was most likely not going to be the final outcome of the game. And if you did, then you just completely shut down the Dodgers' offense and they had an off night. We don't see a lot of those games where you're putting up one run and the other team's not putting up anything. And you're going to wind up winning a game, especially in a World Series scenario. That's not going to happen. No. They just were not getting their ball on the bat from game one forward consistently. And that was their biggest issue. Yeah, James, um, personally, my favorite game in this series was game four, where the most runs were scored. It was very exciting, I thought. Uh, Did you get to watch game four? I thought it was really impressive. And it was a little bittersweet seeing a former Met in Justin Turner uh, get the uh, Dodgers postseason home run record. So that was a big accomplishment for him. You know, I watched game four. Can I? I don't think I watched it from the beginning, but man, can I tell you, Game Four is probably the best game of the World Series, if not the playoff race. Yeah. Um, I didn't really watch too much of it because it was more ingrained within the hockey aspect. Yeah. But um, Game Four, used to our A Rod's reaction. Yeah. At the end, that pretty much much sums up everybody's reaction. At least in my opinion, that that game, Tampa wins eight seven, like a complete battle back and forth. Beautiful. That's a game that you're going to watch on Sports Center and uh, thirty for thirty in the next ten years, and be like, it's going to be a classic being shown. Yep. It, was a, it was a fantastic. It was definitely hands down the best baseball game of this entire postseason. There's, there's no doubt in my mind. And Turner hit his 12th career postseason home run in that game with the Dodgers, passing Duke Snyder for the Dodgers all-time record. And then another interesting thing too was Urias started this game. Blake Trinan wasn't great. And then Baez ended up blowing a save. Again, the Rays offense, it's hot and cold, man. It's Jekyll and Hyde. It's like the Chicago Bears of the NFL. You don't know what to expect (laughs) from them each game. Uh, Bottom four, a Rosarena hits a solo home run where they're down 2 nothing. They need a spark. And then that's where it really started because then you saw Renfro hit one. Yep. They were beginning to crawl back into it. And then Lowe hit a three-run homer. That gave them a 5-4 to four lead. So now Tampa Bay is up. The lead's going back and forth here. And, uh, you know, Jock Peterson gave gave the Dodgers the lead 6-5 to five on a two-run single. And then Kiermaier ties it up with a solo shot. And then top of the eighth, our men, our MVP, Corey Seager, RBI single, puts them up 7-6. And then you're sitting there bottom of the ninth. Oh, no. You know, we've seen this script written once before. 
and then the game-winning two-run single. Um, I'm trying to remember who hit it. Do you guys remember who hit it? The, Phillips. the game four? Phillips. 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 Who he's kind of just come out of nowhere too for them. He's yeah, he, I feel like he's flying under the radar. He was a career minor league player. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I don't even think he started off the season with the Rays. The Rays signed him, was in the minors, and then they brought him up. And I guess he made the World Series roster. You know, that's that's a hit of a lifetime right there. Yeah, and then I think the swinging point of the series was Game Five because remember you're tied two to two. Uh, if you're the Dodgers, I mean, game five is really important when you're tied two to two, because then it's pretty much it's an elimination game scenario. You don't want to be on the opposite end of that where you have to win two in a row, especially when you're the underdog. So the fact that Kershaw was on the mound against Glass now is really key because Kershaw was really good in game one of this series. And then it showed again, Kershaw out Glass now. Blake Trinan ended up getting the save. The Dodgers, again, look, uh, Glass now wasn't bad, but the Dodgers lineup is just too much to withstand. Top of the first, they went up 2-0, Seager and Bellinger. Their bats were all over that Tampa Bay rotation, and then, you know, the Rays scored a couple of runs getting back into it. A Rosarena had his bat involved again, and then it was really it was Mac Muncie with the home run that kind of shut the door. So, again, small margin for error. But the Dodgers come away with a 4-2 win, and then that ended up bringing us to Game 6, where we saw, again, another low-scoring game, as we just talked about a few moments ago with uh, Blake Snell. And, folks, anybody watching right now, if you have any comments on the Blake Snell issue, the Justin Turner controversial uh, you know, post-game celebration, anything in regards to the World Series, feel free to comment on our stream and we will get back to you. But now that we're here in Game 6, let's talk about Justin Turner. So, as I mentioned, the Dodgers win Game 6, 3-1, to one, winning their seventh World Series in franchise history. Justin Turner tested positive for COVID-19 in the middle of the game and was removed uh, later on in the game. And then, uh, unfortunately, the celebration was short-lived for some as you know, they found out Turner had COVID more towards the end of the game. Ken Rosenthal called these post-game actions difficult to justify. Uh, guys, what well, are your thoughts uh, on that? Before anybody gives their thoughts, I got a question. Yeah. Do they get now tested randomly in the middle of the game? No. that test- Because if that test was done in the morning, they should have found out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So for the fact that they didn't find out, to, you know my point right here. You're, I know to the sixth inning, you're calling. That's a little weird. At least that's my opinion. Like because the way it sounds, like oh, they, like Tom, the way you just said it, like I I know us with that watch it. They probably yeah. didn't get a test administered, say in the fourth inning, and then had it sent off to a lab done in like thirty minutes or whatever. Right. But at least we see this for the NFL. Yeah. Right. You, you at least know before you step on the field. The test, this is what happened, according to what I've read, is that he took a test on Monday. And Tuesday morning, that test came back inconclusive. And then he took, which means that, you know, you, you probably do have it, but it's not a definite. And then he took another test, his daily, on Tuesday. And apparently, from what I'm hearing, is that they found out in the second inning and didn't tell Justin Turner to the seventh inning. And this is what my standpoint is and why I think baseball, you know, this it's really it's a really bad situation all around from what they allowed Justin Turner to do afterwards to what 
is now coming about about what they allowed to happen is that this game was played because baseball did not want it to be delayed because we all know that baseball is what we saw is losing a lot of money. They lost $3.1 billion this season, which is massive losses. Tampa Bay, as entertaining as they made the World Series, being the smallest market baseball team in the MLB, hurt the MLB majorly, especially in such a low monetary uh, uh, revenue season. It killed them. We actually have a, a comment that I can't pull up in the in the stream, but it's on the comments in the sports lounge from Scott. Uh, I hope I'm pronouncing this correctly, Scott. Uh, Gil Turner had an inconclusive on Monday. Yep. Restus said he did. So, yep. yeah. But that continue, Kyle. Baseball wanted this game to happen because they didn't want to delay the game for another week or two then mm-hmm. delay game six for two weeks. That's why it happened. The game should have never have happened at all. And it never should have gotten to the outcome of what they allowed Justin Turner to do. And that's a whole different story, but this game shouldn't even have happened based on yeah. safety precautions. They got through an entire season baseball out of all the leagues argument, argument wise, they had the best season in terms of COVID results. So with the exception of the first week, and then you later found out that the Miami Marlins were going to nightclubs. And then you found out <laughs> that the St. Louis Cardinals, oh, they got COVID because they all went to a casino. Baseball did an unbelievable job. And in my personal opinion, they were not going to get all the way to game six of a World Series and have to cancel the game. Yeah. Just want to interject here. Scott says Turner will almost definitely have given others the virus by his actions. Uh, I agree with Scott. Yeah, I do. Um, look, do I think the media's blown this out of proportion a little bit? I do. Uh, do I agree with what Turner did? No, I do not. Do I think it could have been handled differently, though, where Turner could still somewhat celebrate with the team, maybe indirectly? Yes. Um, I think the MLB just handled this terribly. Uh, Turner should have known. The team should have been aware you want to put the safety protocols in first, but um, look, I personally think Turner should have been allowed to go out onto the field, even with COVID, because remember, he said he was asymptomatic. As long as he stayed in a corner isolated by himself and didn't go in with it with the team, I think it could have, I, I think it would have been okay. I think that would have been a right measure, but can you do that on such short notice? No. Uh, And you can't because of the stadium. You have fans there, too, that are celebrating. So now you're in a situation where you're putting the fans at risk. I think if no fans were there, yeah. Um, But apparently the MLB allowed it to happen. They allowed it to happen. And you know what? Hopefully nobody else gets it. But I'm just confused because the Dodgers players and staff, they must have known that he had it. And it seemed like just nobody cared. No, they didn't find out until the seventh inning. They had no idea. Right, but the post-game celebration, when Turner was out there, at that point, I feel like nobody cared. Yeah, you know? they accepted it. But you know what? I guarantee you, because it's the day of, obviously, players are going to be asked about that in the future because that's sadly that's sadly what this World Series is going to be remembered as, is that they got through an entire season perfectly. And, and, and then the Rob Manfred allowed a blatant statement on the biggest stage possible to say, man, I really don't care about the player's safety that much. 
that, so that's what it says. You're right. And I think to piggyback off of that, he's just done like a terrible job majority of the season managing this. But Scott brings up another good point I want to bring up to. Uh, he ignored everything. He should actually be suspended, in my opinion. Yep. Um, I think it should be more the Dodgers and the MLB um, rather than Turner, because at the end of the, at the end of the day, like there's a good chance that they just said, oh, it's OK if you go out again. You don't know what was said. So until there's inconclusive evidence that Justin Turner did something that he shouldn't have done. You can't remember it's innocent until proven guilty. That's the world that we live in. That's the system. So you know what he did at, at the end of the day, I'll tell you exactly what he did. He got out of the room uh, and cursed out the MLB security guards and said, I'm not doing this. I'm not staying inside. And the security guards are the ones that are getting the blame for it. Meanwhile, if I'm a security guard and I'm finding out that you have COVID and granted these security guards, they're ex FBI agent, ex police officers. So they're my, most likely older. That's number one. And they're higher at risk as well. You think I want to get all touchy and physical with a guy <laughs> who got diagnosed with COVID? No, you're not going to address it, sadly. And let alone the guy breaks out onto the field. What are you going to have him get tackled, televised on the field? No, there's nothing you could do. He handled it arrogantly. He handled it dumb. And this is where this is where I draw the line. Man. It's not like the NHL, right? Or the NHL, you just had the players there. You had wives there. You had kids there. You no, had- yeah, that's where I do agree with you. It, it, he shouldn't have been out there with the kids and the wives out there and the fans. This was the cherry on top of how poorly and terribly this will be remembered as. He, Tom, you're talking about having him social distance, of which I don't think makes a difference at all. Because, listen, if you're not going to be center field in the middle right on that mound, I, I don't. I'm watching in the dugout. There's no difference between me watching in the dugout than me watching in a separate room. Yeah. But he's standing. He's you're taking the World Series photo, and you got your mask off. Another thing too. He's out there kissing his wife, holding the World Series trophy, which obviously she knew. But again, that's not a good look. On top of the fact you're sitting smack dab in the middle of the photo, in the middle of everybody, right next to the World Series trophy, and guess who's next to him? Dave Roberts, the oldest member on the team, and you have COVID-19 without your mask on. I mean, like, what are you doing? What are you doing? You know, I definitely agree. He shouldn't have been there in the middle of the picture. James, I want to hear your take on this, too, because this kind of happened as we were all falling asleep, or at least me. So uh, I don't know if you got to stay up to watch this part, but it seemed like an hour after the game was over, the festivities were still going on, and Again, the the Twitter world, the social. Again, I don't follow Twitter as much, so I, I don't know what's being said. But it just erupted. I honestly went to bed after they won. Like <laughs> once, <That's> I, old. <laughs> once I saw the the last pitch, them all run out to the field. I'm like, all right, I know who won. I'm going to bed at that point. Um, do I agree the MLB should have handled this differently? Yes. Do I agree the Dodgers organization should have handled this differently? Yes. Should I? Do I agree that his wife should have not been kissing him? No, because if they were in a hotel room together for the past week or so, won't make a difference. It's, uh, not, no, it's not even that. It's that you're doing – you. the whole world already knows well, you have COVID. Then you come out there holding the World Series trophy in the middle of the field and you're out there kissing your wife not wearing a mask. It's like right, – but, Again, but his wife could have been with him. That you know, the, no, uh, listen, I'm saying yes, she could have already had COVID. But you don't need to publicly on national television after the whole world knows but, you have. 
But Russo, as we see, MLB isn't as strict as what the NFL is doing. I mean, I'm let's be real. That. I'm not doubting. No, no, I know. An individual but, but, standpoint, just because the MLB so is operating, you get a pass. This. Six months ago, I would say, yeah, leave Turner in the locker room. Don't even let him come out. But the fact that this is somewhat treatable now where you can treat this, the problem but, but is I'm the people around him, the people around him are now at risk, and you don't know what they're dealing with. If it's just Turner and his family and everyone's okay with it, then fine. That's their decision. But the fact that there were fans around, still the older coaches as Dave Roberts, uh, you had mentioned Kyle. Who on the team just had heart surgery. Like, what are you doing? Right. But, again, it, it's just – it's like, hard I'm, to talk about because in my, in my personal opinion – hold on. I just want to say one thing. This is treatable, and this whole COVID thing, like – there's a lot of certain things about it that we still don't know about that we're still that we're still learning. So at the end of the day, I think what Justin Turner did was wrong. But am I going to jump on board and say he should be suspended? No, no, I'm not going to jump on board and say that until I know more information and what the certain sources are saying. Because, again, this is only 24 hours afterwards, so we're not going to know everything right away. You know, the Dodgers are off celebrating today or maybe not because of what happened. But uh, let me put you in this boat yeah. real quick before we move on. Earlier in the season, Mike Clevinger and Plesak went out past hours, left the hotel room and went out partying and went out to bars and stuff like that. And you know how the Cleveland Indians addressed it? Because Carlos Carrasco just overcame cancer. They traded Mike Clevinger because nobody wanted to play with him after that point. You're telling me that a guy who got a confirmed COVID case and then is running on the field, I mean, that's it does it does not get any worse than that. I mean, we just look at this differently because this is this is just my opinion on it. It's a matter of showing that you don't it it just it shows no matter what way you look at it, it shows that it doesn't matter at that point in time. I'm a World Series champion, it doesn't matter. Right, but I'm I'm agreeing with you. I'm just trying to bring it from a different angle. I'm trying to bring it from a different angle. If the people know you have COVID and they're okay with that, then by all means. Would I do it? No. no. But at the end of the day, you know, you can't you can't just go ahead and say this decision is the reason why you're going to get suspended because the MLB allowed it to happen because they saw him out there. They should have done something immediately when they had seen it. They didn't see it. So the fact that they reacted poorly to it looks even worse on them. But I look, I agree. I, I see, I see what you're saying, but at the end of the day, you know, we can't live like this forever. You know, we're going to have to move on from it. Uh, and just saying Michael Jordan did play an NBA finals with a flu. So, you know, that's something to consider as well. And he put all his teammates and players at risk of catching the flu. If so you, if you watch the last dance documentary, he admitted it. He had food poisoning from poor pizza in, in Utah. Right. Well, I mean, it's that was the proper association. It was food poisoning from pizza. But anyway, again, it's the fact that you knew it, you knew the repercussions, you knew that it was a rule. And I get it. You want to celebrate out there with your guys because you accomplished something that you never know if you're going to get back there. But everybody's out there on the field who you love. And sometimes, especially in this case scenario where you don't know all the facts. Yeah. Don't, you don't, don't do it. You don't take yeah. it upon yourself to take that risk. Don't do it. Yep. Um, okay. So. A Rosarena valiant effort in this World Series, and it was great to see the Dodgers win this coming short two out of the last three years for them. 
Uh, Rosarena had a really good World Series and playoffs overall. I think he has a very, very bright future. But let's move on to the New York Jets. Uh, we're going to get to the Jets, then we're going to get to our team of the week, and then the Giants, and then we'll bring Gabe on. So the Jets, we're not going to spend too much time on them, but they fall to the Buffalo Bills, 18-10 to 10 off six Tyler Bass field goals. Uh, second time being 0-7 in franchise history. The last time that happened was 1996. Uh, guys... These Jets, I don't. I per, I personally don't know if they'll win a game. I think they're lucky if they win one game at this point. Yeah. Uh, and it was crazy because the Jets led this game midway through the second quarter, ten to nothing. Uh, P. Ryan looked good at a seven-yard score, and then yeah. the Bills ended up getting a pair of field goals before the half. And then the Jets went from a seven-point lead. I'm sorry. Uh, yeah, they were only up no. by a few points, right? So I think it was uh, yeah. I think I meant to put 10 to 6. But I anyways, think it was the, 10, yeah. Yeah, there was 10 6. The Bills, then they'd take a 12 10 lead, and then they didn't look back from there. Well, so, overall, what are your general thoughts on this game? The the Jets looked pretty good in the first half. I talked, uh, my buddy Kyle Earhart is also Jet, is a Jet fan. I was talking to him after, he's like, Jets looked good in the first half. I mean, they did look good. They, they looked they look like a they look like a team that could possibly beat the Bills. Um, then they went into halftime, and, well, they only got the ball for probably approximately two minutes in the second half. Should have the Bills went off on the Jets, they sh- the Bills should have had a field day with these Jets. Yeah. Um, but only winning with uh, field goals is kind of scary as a for a Bills fan because the Jets, you should have blown them out. And let alone the Jets uh, are trying to get rid of Williams, Quentin Williams on the defense, which is yeah. probably their best defensive, one of their best defensive players right now. He's their best player, period. Um, so the Bills might have some problems coming up, guys. Oh, yeah. No, I no. mean, that that's my take on this. The Jets the Jets are going to be the Jets, but the Bills? Yeah, yeah. They, they do have some issues. They have a young quarterback, and they don't have the best offensive line. And their defense has been a little iffy the last few weeks. You know, so the the biggest thing with this Jets game, uh, James, you were talking about st- scary stuff. Here's some more scary stuff. And I don't even know. I, again, this is my theory, and I'll, I'll tell you maybe later on in the discussion. But four yards of total offense in the second half, four total yards of offense in a whole four or half. 40, four, four. Oh, I thought you said 40, four, four yards of total offense in the entire second half for the New York Jets. If that doesn't scream tanking, I don't know what does. Because how can you light up a team like the Buffalo Bills, who have still a good defense, even though they're missing a guy in Matt Milano who's underrated as one of the best linebackers in all of football. And they have fantastic corners in Tredavious White as well. And their front is no joke either. You have four yards of offense. I don't know what halftime speech Adam Gase gave to the Jets but I guess he didn't know how to address the team because I don't think they've been winning at halftime in any of these games this year. But four yards of offense. I don't know how he still has a job. I don't know how. I don't know how. I don't even know. The Jets should have won this game. The Jets, they had a fourth and one situation in the first half where they were at the seven, eight yard line and they opted to go to try and score the touchdown because – They've been that type of team all year instead of just going for the field goal points 
and oh. just trying to get away with a football game like they should have done in the first place. Yeah. And then they did it again in the second half when they had an opportunity to win as well. The Jets should have won this game. Uh, the, James, go back to the Bills point. I know this is a Jets segment. The Bills are fakers, man. The Bills are fakers. This is this was horrible. If they lost this game, my God, you you went from Josh Allen being an MVP candidate to you can't even compete against the you can't even compete against the Jets. I mean, they didn't even compete. The only reason why they won is because the Jets' offense just decided not to show up in the second half. Yeah, Allen had a bad game, and you know. I, I do think the defense does deserve a little credit. They got to Darnold six times now. The 21st game in a row, Darnold's been sacked. That's a league record. Um, but, again, I, it's just a matter of the Jets not having anybody. I mean, they're starting to tank again. I mean, look, McClendon got traded. Denzel Mims made his uh, NFL debut great. You know, he was probably their leading receiver. In fact, he was. Four catches, 42 yards. But I think the problem with the Jets receivers is they can't get good separation. Uh, against anybody, it seems, this season. And Chris Ryan brought it up when we interviewed him a couple weeks ago. He said the exact same thing, and the offensive line is just, it's improved. But is it good? No, not by any means. Uh, They're starting to talk about Quinn and Williams possibly being traded. And when you only get 190 yards of offense, you're not going to win football games, not to mention 91 passing yards. So right there, it just shows you that I think Again, it's more Gase than Darnold, 100%. I mean, they're setting him up to fail. Is Darnold great? I don't think so by any means. I, you know, I'm not the biggest fan of the way he carries himself I, out on the football field. I think he could be a little better. But, I mean, I'm just sick of seeing people knock the kid when he has nothing around him. And I get it. You would see signs of greatness even on a bad team, right? But at the same time, you're going up against this Buffalo team, and you go, get out to a really good lead, and then all of a sudden the brakes just fall off. So, again, I think it was more Buffalo and Sean McDermott doing a really good job coaching in that game in the second half. He knew his offense was struggling. Remember, they are without John Brown. They are without Dawson Knox, yep. right? So Cole Beasley ended up being their leading receiver, I think. So I think Josh Allen did a good job getting him the football. They did a good job containing Stefan Diggs, I thought, guys. They did a very good what job. What do you think about that? I thought the Jets secondary did pretty decent. They did a great job, and it really wasn't the same in the second half. I don't know if you guys um, watched the entirety of the game, but in the second quarter, towards the end of the second quarter, with like two minutes left or something like that, Stefan Diggs took like a really, really hard hit where it took him a couple minutes to get off the field. Yeah, I think that kind of shook him for the rest of the game, and that's why Josh Allen, for the majority of the game, the rest of the game, he went to Cole Beasley as his option. I mean, Cole Beasley in this game went off. He had like 110 yards with like, I don't even know how many receptions. I want to say uh, 11. Nine. For... I want to say nine or something like that. No, 11 receptions. He was, uh, 11 catches for around 110, 115 yards. Maybe they just didn't, uh, I guess after that hit, they just really didn't look to Stefan Diggs as much. Um but the Jets defense, they held their own, you know, for a team that is, you know, trading at the minute, trading Steve McClendon before the game, but yet still allowed him to play the game last week. They're, they're still competing. They're, there's guys that compete and, you know, are not OK with the aura in which the Jets are putting out with an 0-7 record. But back to my earlier point about Adam Gase, this is my theory, and this might be a conspiracy theory, but I, I true wholeheartedly believe it's the case, is that if Adam Gase was to be fired, why wasn't he fired two weeks ago? Why isn't he fired three weeks ago? How do you not fire him after this game? 
with four total yards of offensive ge- offensive production, and this guy is supposed to be an offensive genius. And my method, at least, is this: is that I think they're tanking for Trevor Lawrence, and I think that with a new GM and Adam Gase as the head coach, they both are on board with the fact that they want their own hand-picked quarterback, and that involves tanking and tanking for Trevor Lawrence. I don't think they put Sam Darnold in a place of success. I believe we look at this offensive line and how they invested a total of $60 million into it and how it's all a smoke show and a falsehood. Because not for one minute, no matter how many offensive linemen they signed, did I think they were going to be right that much better to really say, man, Sam Darnold isn't going to get put on his backside five, six times a game continuously. Speaking of all that money and gave him no offensive weaponry. So I just want to point out something. Mekhi Becton was not very good in this game. Neither was George Fant. As Jerry Hughes got to the quarterback twice with two sacks, forced fumble, and he had an uh, interception as well. Uh, Trent Murphy made a couple good plays on the other edge. So I think they were great. Uh, You know, at the end of the day, the Bills didn't play great, but they still managed to outgain the Jets 422 to 190. So remember, those are two NFL teams going at it. Uh, and John Suggs brings up a good point. They are overhyped. The defense is okay. Um, right now, they are overhyped 100%. Uh, will we say that come later on in the season? I'm not so sure because, remember, they are without a couple of key offensive starting weapons. Yep. Right now, I think they could use an upgrade at offensive line. I think Kevin Zeitler could uh, possibly suit them well <laughs> at right guard over Brian Winters, which we'll talk about uh, in a little bit. But – Kylan James, Buffalo allowed four total net yards in the second half. Uh, but they did have 11 penalties and missed two field goals. So, again, I think we attribute this more to Buffalo just really becoming ice cold lately rather than attributing it to the Jets' failures because uh, yeah, I think Buffalo, despite how poorly the Jets played at times, they got to find a way to get back on track quick because remember something. You're not worried about New England right now. You're worried about Miami. You're worried about Miami because they're the only other team playing with the most grit. New England has a terrible, uh, you know, offensive situation right now. They don't have any receivers for Cam Newton. And Cam Newton hasn't looked too good. His accuracy has been terrible. I mean, it's gotten Patriots fans to the point. We've seen this on some of the JDF sports podcasts with Fitz and, and Walt and Kearns and those guys. Walt said it last night. He wants the tank for Trevor. Will you get him? Probably not, but... Look, I mean, they, they really don't like Cam Newton up there. So. Hey, Cam Newton, he, he got me five points on fantasy this week. The whole, the whole COVID situation, I think, messed up the Patriots more than any other team in the NFL. It's just it's hit them the hardest out of anybody because, you know, Cam obviously, had, Cam obviously had COVID, and then the Patriots had barely any offense. If you remember that Chiefs game that they had, the Patriots traveled to Kansas City – the same day as the game, like five hours, six hours before the game, and then played with the second string Brian Hoyer, went to Jared Stidham, and granted such awful performances by those two, the Patriots had a solid chance to win that game. And since then, they've never been able to really get on track. Julian Edelman, I know, has been dealing with a knee injury. Yeah. James White in his own um, you know, personal life, losing his father and almost his mother in a car accident just three yep. weeks ago and still playing the game. This, this Patriots team has been through hell. And they, uh, on top of the fact with COVID situation and everything, because Stephon Gilmore as well had it. They've been hit hard. Yeah. 
There's rumors about him being traded too, which I think is silly. Um, no, yeah. I, he just won Defensive Player of the Year last year. You don't. We have that. a couple comments from Scott again. Uh, oh. Trevor Lawrence is not going to play for Adam Gase. Well, yeah, that's obvious. Adam Gase won't be on the team next year. I feel sorry for you guys. All sound like Jet fans. I cannot believe you don't want Adam Gase fired. <laughs> like yesterday, he is so awful. Actually, none of us are Jets fans. We're all Giants fans. Uh, you know, we're just calling it down the middle here, Scott. Uh, look, Gase should have he been fired. Yeah. But at the end of the day, is 100% of the blame on him? No, the nope. Jets have an awful product. Is he a big part of that and the primary source? Probably, Probably, you know? But at the end of the day, like, it's really difficult for some organizations to fire a coach midseason. I mean, look, I worked for NBC, and, like, I, you know, you see it all the time. People, fans just want coaches fired, fired, fired. That's not, that's not how it works. Look how long it took Dan Quinn and Bill O'Brien to get fired. Right. It's very rare. You see such a young head coach get fired early like that. But I think I do think if there's one um, to have that happen to, it is Adam Gase. Because, again, he, he just he looks like a walking meme. So <laughs> Bill O'Brien, he traded the best receiver in all of football. That's why he got dumped. And then wow. and then who was the other coach that got fired? Um, Tom, who was the other coach? That you Quinn did? O'Brien and Quinn. I mean, he should have been fired after the Super Bowl. I mean that's I mean, they just they have they have not looked that. like they have not looked since that Super Bowl appearance defensively they have never been able to get back. John Suggs, couple comments on the Cowboys. Yep, Cowboys are a mess. Couldn't agree with you more. Sending Griffin to the Lions and Poe and Worley both getting released today. Yep. Uh, but then the Jets they play the Kansas City Chiefs. Uh, no better way to celebrate a loss the Buffalo in Week Eight. The Chiefs are 19-and-a-half-point favorites. They're the fourth-ranked offense in the league, although Denver did a pretty decent job containing them last week, despite it being a snow game. Uh, the Jets actually won the last meeting three years ago, guys. Uh, and this week, the Jets, speaking of trades, they also traded Jordan Willis to San Francisco for a 2022 sixth-round pick. I believe it's conditional. Okay. So... Now, the only question here before we get to this game prediction is, do you think Quinn Williams stays or goes? I think he's going to stay. I think it would be silly for them to trade him only because he just got rid of McClendon. So why, you know, and McClendon is a little bit older than Quinn. I mean, you need something to work with for a new head coach, you know? I think I think that's where it's a defining point, not a matter of, oh, well, I don't have a defensive tackle now. You know, what am I going to do? Oh, yeah, it's yeah. More, just, it's yeah. more of just at the end of the day, you know, you hit on something in a draft pick. You can't just get rid of everybody. You know, you wouldn't have gotten rid of Jamal Adams if he didn't want out. And you wouldn't have gotten rid of McClendon if you didn't feel the need to tank for Trevor Lawrence. And Quentin Williams, although he's a fantastic player, I don't think he's going to be the defining point in your defense or on your team that's going to say, man, that gives us an excellent opportunity to win the game because the Jets have put themselves in such a horrible position on both sides of the ball that, like you said, Tom, there's a legitimate chance they might not win a single game all season. Yeah, that's a really good point. So, uh, James, do you have anything to add on that before we make the picks? No, I'm actually more interested on uh, the picks than uh, Quentin Williams' trade, to be honest with you guys. So, um, I usually don't go first, but I'll just I, – because I have a score already written in my head because they're my lock for the week. The Chiefs are going to win 38-6. to six. It should be an over-under. When does Chad Henney get brought into the game for uh, Kansas City? And the reason why I say 38 to 6 is because, again, uh, 
The Chiefs defense has, I think, improved since week one. Uh, you saw it again last year, too. Remember, Kansas City lost a couple guys on defense, and they're trying to find their own a little bit. I like that rookie they have, uh, Legarius Sneed. 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 Yeah, he's, he's been quietly nice for them. So I definitely think uh, I'm going Kansas City. I definitely know. It's not even a question. Um, Kansas, Kansas City, no doubt. What did they put on Denver, like 42? Can they put a 50 bomber on the Jets? I don't think they'll allow Patrick Mahomes in the game for them to put 50 points up. Uh, just give me 35 to 10. Give me 35 to 10. Yeah, so you're a little nicer than me. Well, listen, man, you, you got to hope that they go into the practice facility sometime this week and say, man, how can we build off the uh, – the 10-point performance last week. Monty, you're up. So I'm going to go with the Kansas City Chiefs. Oh. Man, you're <laughs> and, the Jets. No. And I'm going to do 50 <laughs> to 3. You're something else. That, that's that's a little absurd, I think. Could, but. Le'Veon Bell will go oh, off. Oh, yeah. I forgot he about that. Go off. His old team, he's going to have 120 plus yards, two TDs. I'm calling it here right now. And if I'm right, I'll see everybody next week. Yeah, you bring up a good point. Uh, John Suggs, you think the Browns have a chance of taking down the Raiders? I think Browns defense needs a lot of help. And Average 31 points against, and he also picked the Chiefs to win. Oh, sorry, John. Um, the Browns definitely have a chance, even without Odell. Uh, I'm not picking them though. I'm picking the Raiders. I, don't I think the game yet. Well, we'll find out what quick picture. So if you pick, yeah, the game stay right. tuned for that, folks. Our quick pick segment will be coming up where we talk about all of the games. But let's get to our team of the week, guys. And um, Kyle, I'd like to start with you. Share us who your team of the week is. And for those of you folks that don't know what this segment is, we basically point out who our favorite team is the most impressive team that's been impressive in the entire world of sports over this past week so kyle go ahead all right i'm gonna let you guys have the easy one so i'm gonna go with the arizona cardinals instead because i don't think the uh, the obvious one the arizona cardinals conquered an mvp candidate with an unbelievable comeback performance at the helm of kyla murray this past sunday incredible incredible performance by kyla murray he's showing that he's the real deal He's the real deal. Yes, the Seahawks do not have a defense, but he's a real deal quarterback in this in this league. Okay. I like it. I mean, look, they beat Seattle. They had the best record in the NFC heading into uh, you know, this past week. So that's definitely a good pick and great overtime win. Mm-hmm. James. Uh, I'm gonna go with you know, I would have James, look at your jersey you're wearing. All right, I'll go with the Dodgers. <laughs> I, I was laying up for you. I was yeah, getting I was thinking the same thing. I don't want to say anything, I'll though. I'm like, I'll, go, I'll go with the Dodgers. They finally won. Uh, you know, uh, about time, especially Kershaw, man. He deserves it. He's been on that team for a long time and hasn't gotten a ring, and he's finally gotten his ring. I'm very happy for him. Uh, so that is my team of the week. And uh, John Sh- Suggs says Tampa. Must be his team of the week. Tom. Yeah, that's a good pick. Brady had a great performance. Uh, I'm going with the Pittsburgh Steelers because they're the only undefeated team left, uh, and they beat one of the other two unbeatens in the Tennessee Titans. But more importantly, if you look deep into this game, 
you can see that Pittsburgh is for real. They run the football very efficiently. Yep. Roethlisberger still has gas left in the tank, and that defense is really, really good. Uh, I know Henry, Derrick Henry had a decent game, but overall I thought they were able to contain him to the point where he didn't blow them up. Um, and nobody talks about them still, in my opinion. You really don't. I mean, I don't know what you guys think, but do you think of the Pittsburgh Steelers as a Super Bowl contender over teams like the Chiefs, Packers, and Seahawks? Probably not. You know, and I think that's why they're my team of the week. They're six and zero, but they still find a way to just fly under the radar. Over the Seahawks, yes, because they have a defense. That's true. I think that why we don't view them as that, and even in this game in which they won. We all know Goskowski is having a horrible season and, and missed the game-tying field goal. And even in this game, I believe at one point, and I could be mistaken when I say this, didn't didn't Pittsburgh have like a 27 to like 10 lead or something like that? Or 23 yes. lead, and they just absolutely just got steamed. Especially yeah. Ben Roethlisberger. He was, yeah. he was giving the game away. He was yeah. throwing end-zone picks. And yeah. let the Titans get back in the game. And I think, yeah. that's where, I think that's where they falter in a sense. All right, guys. James, you have anything to add? Are we ready to move on to talk about our New York Giants? Yeah. Uh, I'm looking forward to talking about them. Uh, well, previewing their game against Tampa. But before we get there, we have to recap the Philadelphia game quickly because I know it was almost a week ago at this point. So I'm sure not many people want to hear us ramble on too long about them. But they are 1-6. They lost to the Eagles by one point last week on Thursday night football. But the Giants led 21-10. to over midway through the fourth quarter at 11 o'clock at night, we we're saying, guys, this is our team. And then a half an hour later, we were, we were yeah, saying, that was you. This is our team. Yeah. You know? So I, I had to bring that up, Kyle, because I thought, I thought it was funny. I personally thought it was funny when you met, uh, mentioned it. But the Eagles <laughs> now have eight straight wins against the Giants, and the Giants have not won in Philadelphia since 2013. Yeah. So terrible. How long ago was that? I was a senior in high school. I was a junior in high freshman school. Freshman in college, sorry, because it was oh, the fall. The, oh, so yeah. I was a senior in high school. You were a freshman in college. And Russo yeah. was in second grade. Second so, grade. <laughs> Kyle Russo, I want to start with you. How big was that Evan Ingram drop in this game? Now, I know a lot of people – you know, you don't want to make an, an excuse and say the Giants would have won if he caught that ball. But I think if he catches that ball, it puts the Giants in a much better spot because they have a new fresh set of downs and they can keep chewing up some clock. But what do you think? How big was that drop? I mean, it was huge. I mean, that was the game clincher. Danny Dimes, Daniel Jones, excuse me. We got to earn that name back. Daniel Jones threw an unbelievable pass where only Evan Ingram could grab it. And granted, even if he caught that, he could have ran that into the end zone with the separation that he built from the defender. And he drops the pass. The Eagles get the ball back, and the rest is history. But like you said, Tom, every team has their excuses. You know, if Philadelphia lost, this is what we'd be talking about. And I don't even know if you guys realize this. With Philadelphia, they left on this in this game, they left 21 points on the board. They yeah. made two extra points. Jake Elliott missed a field goal. Carson Wentz throws a ridiculous end zone pick instead of just throwing it out. And on a fourth and two situation at the five yard line in Giants territory, they decide that instead of taking the field goal, which would have gotten them over the Giants in terms of point at that, in terms of score at that point in time, 
they go for the touchdown and mess it up. Yeah. They, um, they had every opportunity to win this game. I'm talking about the Giants, and they just they still could not do it. They just still could not do it. The Eagles, again, gave them every opportunity to win. And I, I said this the minute the minute it happened. The minute Hightower caught that 52-yard it pass, was over. it was over. Yeah, you, you knew we were going to score. And then the Giants were going to get the ball back. And not that I didn't have confidence, but they I know that they play conservative football, and that's what happened. They play conservative, and then they gave the ball back. And then so let's let's breeze through this, James. I want to get your thoughts on Sterling Shepard and his return. Um, honestly, I was very surprised on his return. Not going to lie, I thought they were going to keep him more on a pitch count than anything else. Um, because I had him on my bench for fantasy, figuring, all right, they're only going to put him in for a few reps, get him kind of back into it. You're playing in. Uh, Washington, where they play on grass, um, he had a phenomenal game. He is truly a playmaker for this offense. He compliments Slayton. He gets the Slayton takes most of the. Um, I'm blanking on the term. Uh, he usually gets singled out now because yes. he's their number one. Yeah, so that opens up the room for Shepard, and Shepard's kind of your underdog in a sense. Yeah, no, I agree. Um, you know, he's a good slot receiver. The problem is he can't stay healthy on the field. John Sugg yeah. says Giants need to improve on rushing. They would have won if Daniel was not their leader in rushing. Well, I think what really killed them was not just the inability to run the football. I mean, that was a big part of it, but uh, Devontae Freeman got hurt in this game too. That definitely hurt them. Although yeah. we did see Wayne Gallman break out for a couple of good runs towards the end, but I want to really hone in on the second quarter. It was full of miscues. Kyle, as you were alluding to, the Eagles did leave a lot of points off the board. Uh, it was weird because the Giants had an eight-play drive in the second quarter. That ended in an interception. The Jones picked to Jalen Mills. And then Carson Wentz did the exact same thing, the interception to Bradbury on a 10-play drive. So now we're looking at two turnovers. Giants get the ball back. What do they do? <laughs> the Deion Lewis fumble. So now we're looking at three turnovers. And then... Jake Elliott missed as a 29-yard field goal wide left. So that was the second quarter. That was pretty much it. Um, and then the second half ended up starting with four three and outs. So from that point on, from the beginning of the second quarter, midway into the third quarter, it was just like, what the heck are we watching? And this is what everybody was talking about. They don't want to watch these two one-win teams go at it. And I think it showed the team that made fewer mistakes ended up winning the game. And that's why Philadelphia won. Tom, even the guy you had on, Mike uh, Vivolo, if I'm saying that last name correctly, mm-hmm. yeah. he even said the same thing on your, your, your and Hank show, Big Blue, on Big Blue Avenue. So, Kyle, why don't the Giants use Golden Tate more, asks John Suggs. I think they developed an offensive scheme in which they don't want to use him. I mean – Sterling Shepard has been out for a majority of the season right now. And like James said, you know, this was a guy who they just took off the IR less than 24 hours before this football game. And yet they still didn't look to go to Golden Tate in the previous games at all. You know, he was having games with one catch. Yeah. Uh, You're going to Evan Ingram more, who has been notorious for dropping passes than Golden Tate, your veteran receiver. That just shows how you do not want to work him into the offense at all. Do I know why? No. That'd be a great question to ask the coaching staff 
That'd be a great question to ask Dave Gettleman why you signed this guy on a massive uh, a four-year deal when he doesn't look to use him at all in the offense. That'd be a great question. So before we get to the Tampa Bay game, we want to bring up a few more things on Philadelphia because uh, we are running a little over here. Uh, the first play on the next drive in the third quarter, Daniel Jones breaks out for an 80-yard run. Uh, the infamous trip, but it did lead to a one-yard Wayne Gallman touchdown and then the Sterling Shepard touchdown to start the fourth quarter. But from that point forward, it was all Philadelphia touchdowns from Greg Ward and then Boston Scott beating Jabril Peppers down the far sideline for the game-winning score. Um, Doug Peterson had that late challenge, too, against Golden Tate, if you guys remember that play. Uh, That was very... Interesting. I thought uh, I'm trying to remember the specifics as to what happened. I think the challenge flag was too late yeah. or something. And the Giants just did a really good job of getting to yes. the line and snapping it. So all the refs were focused on their position within the field and not worried about yeah. the sideline. Um, and then the Eagles have activated a 21 day practice window okay. for Dallas Goddard, Jalen Rager also. So the Eagles do have some reinforcements coming, but the biggest thing in this game for me and the biggest play of this week for the Giants was the Daniel Jones run. And let's just take a look at that. Let's take a flashback at this beautiful piece of work by our quarterback. <laughs> From the 12, Jones keeps, gets a block, takes off, and he is gone. Trying to stay upright, and he trips. Absolutely all alone, and he trips going to the end zone and ends up carrying it as it is for 80. So you guys get the point. Daniel Jones, just we don't have to watch in slow motion and uh, torture the viewers through that, but pretty much uh, this is being memed around the entire football universe right now. and. I don't think Daniel Jones realized how fast he could actually run. I think that was a part of the problem. He he was going so fast, he just lost steam towards the end of this play, guys. He even, got ahead of himself. Even the even the highlights aren't even highlights. These that's that's it's just embarrassing. And we want to talk about how Wayne Goldman scored. If you remember exactly what happened on that play, the Giants were going to kick a field goal. They got it to a third down. Okay. And because Nikhil Roby Coleman uh, was holding Evan Ingram in the end zone, they got another opportunity to go to the yep. one-yard line and just have Wayne Goleman jump over the offensive line. If they kicked the field goal, I don't care what anybody says, that would have been one of the most embarrassing things ever. It's yep. still one of the most embarrassing things ever. Oh, 100%. So let's move on, though, because we are somewhat short on time. Uh, the Giants' defense had three sacks in this game, one of them from Marcus Golden, who they traded away to Arizona for – a 2021 sixth round pick. It is conditional. Uh, guys, thoughts on this trade with Marcus Golden? I personally think it was a good trade because he didn't fit the scheme. And, you know, Fakrell and Zimenez will be coming off IR eventually. And I think you want to start seeing more of guys like Cam Brown and Carter Coughlin. I just didn't see Golden as a part of the future, but. I was kind of hoping for more than a sixth-round pick, but it seems like beat reporters like Dan Dugan were thrilled, maybe not thrilled, but happy that the Giants were able 
to get a sixth round pick in return as we were jeering that. So, well, um, I mean, yeah. I think it's more of the fact that the aftermath of what we saw in ter- uh, seen in terms of value, like we we saw what Everton Griffin got in, in a Dallas Cowboy trade. He only got a sixth round pick, and then we saw earlier today. Uh, Carlos Dunlap, who, who's been a fantastic player for the Cincinnati Bengals for, Bengals for years, was only able to get a, a, a bench offensive lineman in a seventh-round conditional pick. So like yeah. you said, Tom, we cheer for a six-round pick now, but at the moment it was not something to be too happy about. So there's one other player I want to talk about. I know we had four listed, but we're going to focus on just one for tonight, and that's Evan Ingram. Reports are saying that Evan Ingram will be staying with this football team. Do either of you think there's uh, a significant chance that he is dealt? Who I say him? no. Who wants him? The teams want him. A lot of really? teams. A lot of teams want him. That's not the problem. I think this is what the Giants fear the most. I think the Giants fear that they've had this guy now for what three, four? Is he in his fourth year? Because they did his fourth year. Yeah, fourth year. Four years they have managed to ruin this player and not develop him at all. And they fear that if they trade him to a team like the Patriots who were interested, like a team like the saints who were also interested, they will be watching this kid be the guy that they thought that they could develop him into. And my question is how many more years, considering that you only has one year left and half a season. Now, when do you see the turnaround happening? Because in four years, it hasn't been able to happen. And this guy in Philadelphia, a game clinching catch, lowered his value even more. Teams are calling for you. I don't know if it's worth the risk to keep on lowering his value even more by playing him, considering that your offense is not good enough to show how good of a player he could potentially be. Right. You're only depreciating his value when teams are, according to sources, are offering a third round pick for him. I'd take that in a heartbeat, considering no, I would too. That. I would too. It's just. I, I don't know if the Giants are going to do it. No, they're not going to. They picked up his fifth-year option, and I don't think uh, Jason Garrett and Judge and the you know Dave Gettleman necessarily trust Caden Smith to be that number one guy for the rest of the year. So, but I yeah. will say this: you know, in this game, the Giants showed a lot of good stuff. Daniel Jones was pressured again. He's the most pressured quarterback in football. There's you know, there, there's a lot of debate, which we'll get into more tomorrow night on Big Blue Avenue, if it's the inability to uh, read protection, recognize blitz packages, or if the offensive line just stinks. But I think it's a, co- a little bit combination of everything right now, and it needs to be fixed. And I think it definitely needs to be fixed heading into Tampa Bay. Uh, on Monday Night Football, they're 5-2. and two. Obviously, the Giants trying to bring him a little bit of help as they sign wide receiver Corey Coleman, finally bringing him back. He uh, he should have never been cut, but I think you guys can all agree on that. But anyway, because obviously it was weird because you saw Alex Bachman activated uh, to the 53 man who that just made no sense. Then Austin Mack as well. I think Coleman's better than both of those guys. Like what? You know, Um, and then, you know, we didn't even bring this up. And I know. I, we have to touch upon this, though. The party on Friday night with Jones, Barkley, Mac, and Victor were the four names that were definitely brought up. I'm sure there was other players there, but it was just insane. I was not very happy about that. What are your guys' thoughts on that? And looking back on it, I, I feel like it should just be something there that's a punishment with just the Giants 
rather than the NFL. I, I don't think they specifically broke any NFL protocols, but as far as team protocols go, there should be some type of, uh, you know, punishment for it. Team protocols, uh, punishment. Yes. NFL. No. Um, it's like that boat trip. Yeah. All over again, but yeah. now it's in New York city. I just, this is, this is my thing is that you look at the Titans who were threatened to have been taken away draft picks for holding a, you know, a private practice. At least they were trying to do some productive things to improve their football team. Mm-hmm. You're out here watching a losing team with a guy that has a torn ACL with a quarterback that has been very bad this season and two undrafted free agent wide receivers and you're out partying after a loss to Philadelphia in one of the most embarrassing ways possible. I This is, the, this is such a terrible... Well, again, if this is Patrick Mahomes and the Kansas City Chiefs, we're not talking about it. But when you're losing like they are, the way they are, yeah, you cannot it, it looks be bad. having this stuff. You cannot be having this happen. So here's my thing, and again, we'll we'll make the predictions for Tampa Bay after this, and then get gave up. But um, it was a private dinner that turned into not like a party, but like they were drinking, and you saw you know additional people there that weren't part of the team. Uh, and then the one guy who owned the place was taking selfies with them and posting them on social media. And that's just, what's crazy. Cause once something goes on social media, it just blows up. And uh, you know, it's definitely not a good look, but I don't think it's something that the league should take upon to punish the giants. I don't think there's anything so severe about that because they were following safety protocols. It's not like the whole team just showed up and there was ran- like random people there. They didn't know. Apparently what they were saying is they knew pretty much everybody that was there through somebody at least, and everybody, you know, was um, had their temperature before they uh, taken before they entered the building. So that's you know that's at least a good thing. But moving on to Tampa Bay, Chris Godwin will not play in this game, and then Antonio Brown cannot play until Week Nine. So the Giants kind of catch a break there, but you're still playing Tom Brady and the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Rob Gronkowski's beginning to hit his stride, and the Bucks are ten and a half point favorites, but. The Giants actually, fun fact, they have not lost to Tampa Bay at home since 1997. Giants lost that game 20 to 8. So let's uh, let's predict this game, guys. And uh, I, I'm excited to play Tom Brady and Gronk again. Uh, you know, even if it comes out as a, out as a loss, I think the Giants are going to put up a good fight. I really do. I don't know how. This defense is going to kill the offense. I'm not even worried about the offense. I'm worried about the defense. JPP. Is going to tear apart Andrew Thomas. It's it's already going to happen. It's just a matter of how many times he's going to get to Jander Jones. That's, okay. Um, so what's your prediction then? Oh, hands down, goose egg. You know, for the Giants on chances of winning, but we're talking Tampa winning this game probably like thirty-five to ten as well. It's going to be that bad. It's going to be. It's a, it's. I think it's a trap game. I mean, the Tampa Bay is still going to win, but they're not going to win by twenty-five points. We can't. The Giants can't guard tight ends. <sighs> The Giants can't yes, We know that. We saw what Richard Rodgers did to us last week. I, I, to- I totally understand well, that. Richard Rodgers to have almost 100 yards receiving. What well, are you going to do? John, John, John Suggs just backed you up. Look, I don't think it's going to be that big. I really don't. Look at the Giants' defense, too. Yeah, they've been struggling in the last couple of weeks, but how many times have the Giants been blown out this season? Once. And it was, the, it, it was to San Francisco late 
in the game. Since then, the team has improved, and I think the defense is going to hang in tough against Brady. I just don't think the offense is going to be able to do anything. I think Tampa Bay is only going to win by about two touchdowns. You know, that's just my opinion. I think they're going to win. I, I really do, Kyle. I, I, I really do. Don't laugh. I mean, look, I really think. I'm, I'm not laughing, but we're talking about you saying it's going to be a close game, and then you're talking two touchdown differential. So then, well, so, so then the, the, what's your prediction? Of the, the final score of the game doesn't always paint the picture to how the game was played. You know what I'm trying to say. This is going to be a huge. All right. This is going to be huge for Daniel. Let him do his prediction. Tampa Bay by two touchdowns. Final score. Uh, you know what? 27 to 13. That's that's what I'm feeling right now. Again, Tampa Bay's defense is going to slaughter this offensive line. But I look, no Godwin, no Brown. I get it. They still have Evans and, Gron- and Gronkowski and Scotty Miller. But I, I think the Giants are going to play better than what people think. Hope so. I'm going Bucks 24 17. Holy that's, moly. That's James. I think that's a little too close, but I think uh, I respect that pick, and we'll end it on that. Um, so let's move on to our next segment. Oh, God. Uh, Gabe Flayton, finally. Uh, we're going to bring Gabe up here. Gabe, hello. Oh, there he is. What's up, guys? How's it going? Welcome to the show. And quick comment from John Suggs again. Brady's on a mission. He finally has Max Kellerman's approval. Yeah. You guys see that on first take a couple of days? Yeah. I, I'm so I'm so glad because he always said, you know, Brady's a game manager, systems quarterback, and just prove that. I mean, what more does Brady have to prove in his career, really, if we think about it? But, oh, uh, quick pick segment. So, James, you can click the banners as you want. I just want right. to quickly announce that the week seven loser is moi, myself. So my punishment is I have to wear this wig. Hold on, Tom, I'm, Tom, I'm going to remove you so they can be all surprised. Oh, okay. Sounds good. So this week, Tom was our loser. I'll give a little uh, summary. Uh, it was actually a pretty tough battle um, fought for everybody. In a sense, well, besides Russo, he only lost three games, which I'll pull up shortly. And um, so. Never bet on it, guys. Never bet on it. I believe Tom is ready with his little uh, costume. Let's all see. All right. Pull it back. I got a little hair in my face, but it's okay. I'm here. What do you guys think, man? James, we ordered these wigs about two and a half years ago, and we actually wore them on a live show. And you know what? We're going to have a little bit of fun with this punishment tonight. I'm actually going to show you guys the last time I wore this wig. It was actually out in public uh, on Halloween speaking. It is Halloween week. And here it is me with the one, the only Baker Mayfield uh, at sign of the whale in Stanford, Connecticut of Baker's guys. What do you make of that? Legendary <laughs> Great. The guy dressed up as Baker Mayfield for Halloween. So I went up to him. I was like, man, dude, let's get a picture. This Tom, was and that. Feeling, Tom was feeling dangerous and had to ask Baker for a picture. One, yeah. thing, one, one thing led to another, and we were buying each other drinks throughout the whole night. So that was that. But I, I hope you guys like the creativity. You know, when you lose in these quick picks thing, you kind of have to have fun with your punishment a little yes, bit. You so do. that's what I'm doing here tonight. 
Uh, John Suggs, quick comment. Uh, looks like Uncle Rico. <laughs> That's accurate. Thank you very much. So shall we move on to uh, – yeah, you can uh, – let me get myself off yep. the screen first. Thanks, Baker. Goodbye. Oh. All righty. <laughs> As I add this to the stream. All righty. So I have to move on over to another one. As you can see, in week seven, Tom, Tom, I think you have a fun fact about your locks before I move on. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, the reason why I showed that picture – wasn't just because it was Halloween. It's because my upset was the Bengals over the Browns. And this is the second time I picked the Bengals as my upset. And I'm pretty sure I've lost both times for the week. I've picked the Bengals as my upset. So Baker's doesn't. By the way, the Browns have swept the season series against the Bengals already. So just a little fun fact there. But Gabe, congratulations. You were great this week. You had, I think you had 13 points. Gabe had 13. Got bailed out from a upset and lock, it looks like, on a game basis. Fun fact, I actually won my pool this week uh, amongst 35 people picking the spread. So that was really nice. But picking money lines isn't always easy. Congratulations. So, as you guys see at the bottom, uh, the week seven uh, points, Tom with nine. As you can see, he is the loser. Kyle with 14, Gabe coming right behind him with 13, myself at 10. Um, and then we see I have the most points at 85 for the 2020 season total. Uh, Gabe is in last with 28. But it's honestly a tight race, and we did see this last year, Tom Russo, um, that when we had Fonz on, nobody really pulled ahead in uh, the point system. Russo's no. right up. Uh Coming up right behind, Tom is very close behind it along with Gabe. So, honestly, any given week right now could be a, uh, you know, could overmatch me. Yeah. In the points. Um, <laughs> so, anything else we have to cover on week seven before I go on to week eight? Well, yeah, week seven, we want to talk about the games. Uh, All right. So, here, let's, uh, James, if you can take that off the screen just for one moment. I want to, yep. I want to get a more concrete graphics so people so we we could all see where we are at the moment in these standings so here we are me and kyle switched switched spots um i was the winner last week he was the loser now he's the winner and i'm the loser and we switched between second and third gabe is now only one point uh behind me overall for the season and then james you and kyle are close again it's still anybody's game only seven points separate first from last so you know i mean i'm really looking forward to it but those are the standings guys you can see it right there very little margin for error um and then james you can go back to the excel i'll stop sharing my screen um all right so detroit and atlanta this game really was the only game that i think all of us missed um yes yeah, because Gabe took Arizona, or James, or one of you took Arizona. Anyway, Gabe took Arizona. Uh, Detroit wins on the final play of this game. Touchdown to TJ Hawkinson after Todd Gurley apparently scored an accidental touchdown that gave Detroit time. And I don't know what happens now to Atlanta, man. This really screwed us over. I mean, I thought they were going to win at home, but I don't know if Detroit's for real, but 
man, I'm just looking at that Cincinnati next to it, and I'm not too much of a happy camper looking at that because that game was wild back and forth. I mean, I think that upset should have happened, but it didn't. <laughs> so, yeah, that honestly, that was a pretty good game, uh, Cincinnati and Cleveland. I did get Washington, though. I got I got Washington. You did get Washington. Um, Dallas did fly all the way to Washington just to burn jet fuel and money to only kick a field goal. And then, uh, you know, I guess uh, they're now looking for new players. Andy Dalton is out. Well, well, he was. He did get. He went into concussion protocol. Um, Speaking of Andy Dalton, we're going to show a quick video as to what happened to him and why the Dallas Cowboys are a complete shit show right now. Gun snap. He's going to scramble for it. Dalton is going to get injured at the end of this play. He scrambles, going forward, slides, and gets blasted by John Bostic, the linebacker for Washington. And Dalton, almost motionless on the field, loses his helmet down and immediately attended to. My goodness, what a terrible-looking play there. Obviously flagged on the play. That young man is Ben DiNucci. He is a... Who? James Madison. <laughs> You're going to talk about that. Hey, if this doesn't speak to the culture of the Dallas Cowboys locker room at this very point in time and what they believe in at this very moment, that play speaks all. You know, we saw last year where players got hit like that. One that sticks out to me personally, uh, when Miles, uh, Miles Garrett takes off his helmet and hits Mason Rudolph, and then you see uh, Mike Pouncey, I believe it was, go in there and actually look to fight the guy and defend him. This is, uh, there's no excuse. This is a dirty, dirty, blatant, dirty hit. And yes, guys go over to Andy Dalton, but John Bostick is walking on the field like there's nothing happened. There, there's no NFL fine, nothing happened. Dallas Cowboys are not fighting with the guy. Yet when you saw Scott go down with the ankle injury, and this proves, man, uh, the, these last couple of games prove how much Dak means to that team. Dak Prescott breaks his ankle, rightfully so, everybody. Everybody is coming up sidelines, defensive player or not. It just shows that they – I don't know if it's a matter of believing in the franchise, believing in the head coach, or believing in your quarterback, but that's, that's a terrible look right there. Gabe, I want to get to you here. I personally think that the team should have been more to the aid of Andy Dalton because he's a good guy, and, you know, he – is pretty much a stand-up dude that sat behind Dak Prescott and got his opportunity to play again. And the fact that his teammates didn't really seem to care that Bostic was walking freely after that bothers me a little bit as a fan of the the, the NFL. That's It's messed up to – I mean, I don't know what was going through their heads. Maybe they thought – maybe the coaches told them, like, don't do anything, and they listened to their coaches. We don't know everything that was going on behind the scenes. But I totally agree with Kyle. That's If that's a team that I'm a fan of, I want my guys – defending my quarterback especially he's the most vulnerable player on the field and usually the most sensitive he should definitely get better representation yeah no i mean i i agree there was just some gruesome injuries this week odell beckham tore his acl he's out for the year second time he's done that in his career by the way um i'm still not sure if the browns are a playoff team just considering there's two teams better than them in their division and you know, now you're without a, a star receiver on, on your team, and your other one is playing with broken ribs still and Jarvis Landry. So now you're going into this Raiders matchup, and personally, I have the Raiders upsetting the Browns this week uh, just because I think the, the Raiders, 
offensively had a good showing. I think the fact that they have Josh Jacobs and Darren Waller, for me, that puts them above Cleveland. And I think Derek Carr is a better quarterback in this league than Baker Mayfield. Yeah. You know, I think he's very underrated. He doesn't get uh, a lot of respect from the critics. So I'm going Vegas as my upset this week. I got to still determine who I'm going to pick in this game. It's going to be tight no matter what, because these are both quarterbacks that even though Derek Carr is good, he does make a decent amount of mistakes with the football. He doesn't yeah. necessarily have the cream of the crop receivers. One of his go-to guys, even though they drafted Henry Ruggs early in the draft, has been Nelson Aguilar, who's notoriously known for dropping passes. He's just catching everything uh, deep down the field. He's been a deep uh, deep threat target. But I, I think this game is going to come down to whatever defense shows up. Uh, I think that's really the factor in this game, what defense is going to show up. And I think that will be how I determine my pick, as I have not chosen that one yet because it is such a tight matchup. Yeah, guys, it's going to be a great week for quick picks. And, you know, I picked – Kansas City to beat Denver last week, but I thought Denver showed a lot of heart uh, despite the fact that they're really just outmatched by Kansas City. Uh, Garrett Bowles, their left tackle, actually made a comment saying that I don't know what makes them so dominant over us. Uh, it was just really funny to watch. I don't know if you – did, did yeah. you guys see that on social yeah. media? It's just – yeah. It's like – Yeah, but come on. Like what else is he going to say, you know? You don't you don't blatantly say that. You just compliment the team and say they're a really talented football team. You don't say, I don't know what makes them more talented than us. How about the fact that they have the best tight end in football? How about the fact that they have a five hundred million dollar right, quarterback? You gotta, you gotta give like your teammates some confidence. Like if they see you going out on social media and saying that, like Well then you say listen, the, the, they had a better day on any given Sunday. You don't say <laughs> I don't know what makes them better than us. Yeah. Their um, player was Noah fan, and he was playing with a high ankle sprain out there. He in the was. Snow. In the snow. Speaking of another team that's struggling with injuries, Gabe, do you think Cam Newton deserved to get benched against San Francisco this past week? I think it's tough to say because their backup situation isn't really any better. So Cam Newton's probably the best chance they have of being a playoff team. Uh but I think a lot of people had this thought that he was back in the first three weeks of the season. Everybody was like, Cam's back. And now we see just the how downhill it went after COVID. I don't know who the real Cam Newton is because uh, he's – is he fully healthy? I don't know. When he is fully healthy, maybe he has to be going up against a cupcake opponent. I really <laughs> don't know who the real cupcake. Cam Newton is. And I think – I don't think he's the, the permanent answer. So – they should be getting new guys reps once in a while because Cam Newton isn't proven right now at all. No, he's not. Um, another thing I think too, is that now new England, you're sitting here, they're two and four, they're two and four for the first time since 2000. Uh, and they've lost three in a row for the first time in 18 years. So I just, I don't know if they're in the mix for a playoff spot or they're, if, in, if they're in the mix for Trevor, like I honestly don't know because the AFC, I mean, you're starting to think Buffalo is the only team that comes out of that division, you know, and I'm starting to think Kansas city is the only team that comes out of the West. Then you look at the South probably gets two with the Titans and the Colts. And then I guess the North gets the other three. 
which could be Cleveland as a seven seed, even without Odell. I'm just starting to think about it now. The Browns really could make this, not because I think they're great, but with the way the AFC is shaking up, guys, I don't see uh, a Vegas or a New England outplaying a Cleveland down the stretch. Although I will say, admit that Cleveland has a very difficult schedule down the stretch. So it should be fun yeah. to watch for sure. I think Vegas, I think Vegas is going to surprise people. Um, yeah. they're, they're 500 right now. And that division is, is easy in a way. I mean, they, they play, they beat the best team in the division. So Denver and, and LA, I think is a lot easier than what the Browns have to go through. I think it's going to. I think the Raiders are going to edge out the Browns come the end of the year, especially with the OBJ injury too. Let's talk about the Chargers. As John Suggs comments, Justin Herbert, rookie of the year, another three hundred yard game, uh, first win as an NFL starter as well. We need to note against the Jacksonville Jaguars, and I believe everyone took the Chargers in this game. Uh, you know, you're you're good. Buddy Sam Cardona brought up a good point on her podcast this week that uh, the Chargers are probably were probably the best one and four team heading into that game. Now they're two and four. Do you start to look at them and say, "Hey, they have a good coach. If Herbert gets hot, who knows? They could possibly overtake Cleveland and Vegas for a spot." I mean, it matters how you finish. I mean, look what Washington did. 15 years ago, they were five and six. Everyone uh, wrote them off and then they ended up running the table, winning the last five games. So the chargers, in my opinion, they need to be like five and six, four and seven around that. And then just run the table. That's what they're going to have to do if they want to get in. Justin Herbert down to the wire. He's already proven he's an NFL quarterback competing against Patrick Mahomes in a neck to neck overtime battle. Then you have Drew Brees and then Tom Brady. It doesn't yep. be harder than those three guys in the NFL, and this guy competed as a rookie. I mean, some of these games, I don't know the majority of the Chargers' schedule. I know that they play the Jets in the upcoming week, so that could be a win. But I don't know the remainder of their schedule. But that Justin Herbert's been unbelievable. He's been absolutely incredible. I wouldn't say rookie of the year, offensive rookie of the year. I'm still edging that out to Joe Burrow because Joe Burrow, the Cincinnati Bengals have lost games, not Joe Burrow. Joe Burrow's not lost games. The Cincinnati Bengals have. Um Justin Herbert's fantastic. I think they actually play each other sometime this season, and it, that that's going to be a matchup to watch, a battle of the rookies. They, they already did. Burrow and Herbert, they played – well, the, the Bengals played the Chargers in week one, but it was oh, Tyrod Taylor. They missed their opportunity then. Yeah, that, that, that was unfortunate. That would have been really fun to watch. But yeah. uh, Speaking yeah. of that game, that game was lost by the Bengals because of a missed field goal. Remember Randy Bullock playing a quad? On the field goal attempt. Former Giant, by the way. Yeah. Two more games to recap. The Titans and the Steelers. I mean, we won't spend much time on this, but the Steelers are 6-0. and And, again, they were my team of the week. Uh, I don't know. I mean, I, I believe I picked Tennessee to win this game, and Guskowski missed a field goal again at the end. Now, do the Titans rely on Guskowski, or, or is he starting to get a little washed up? I think they got to just find a new kicker because you saw early in the season too. Remember that it was the first game of the season, right? When they played Denver and he missed like four kicks and he made the one kick that mattered to win the game. And I was surprised they stuck with him after that. 
And now this is a game on uh, which you go into two undefeated teams. And not saying that you would have won the game, but at least you would have a chance to tie it. And it's on the sole hands of Stephen Goskowski. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then we got the Bears and the Rams. And Gabe, uh, you were talking on the North Pole last night, and Andy Hopper mentioned the comment in, uh, on your show. The Bears are 5-2. and two. We're talking about them like they're 1-6. and six. Like, you really nailed Bears fans last night on, on your show. They lost to the Rams 24 to 10. Uh, talk about Foles. And do you think that the Bears should be concerned moving forward? Because I still think there's a good chance they miss the playoffs. Totally agree. There is a great chance. Right now, Allen Robinson is in concussion protocol. He is their lifeline on offense. That's Nick Foles' lifeline. They don't get the ball moving around to many different guys. Cole Komet, finally, everybody's hooping and hollering that Cole Komet got two catches because he'd been on pace to have maybe 20, 30 catches the entire season. Uh, So this offense, Nagy's running this offense into the ground. But what he really needs to do is is just run the ball more, uh, get David Montgomery the ball more, and things will open up in the passing game. Foles has one of the worst worst quarterback ratings in the NFL right now. One of the worst in yards per attempt. Nothing's working for them. People are blaming their offensive line, but you know what offensive line you have during the week in practice. Don't (laughs) call plays like you have the Indianapolis Colts offensive line. Uh, I just think Matt Nagy right now is really on the hot seat for calling plays. And that's an issue. Well, it is. And the fact that Sean McVay is now 30 and Oh, as the Rams head coach when leading at halftime is an insane stat. Um, Although the Rams did lose rookie safety Terrell Burgess for the rest of the season. That was unfortunate. Um, But yeah, it's, you know, falls a former Ram too, but it'll be interesting to see, by the way, before we um, talk about some of the week eight key games over these last couple of minutes, I just want to say I'm the only person to hit every lock still through seven weeks. I'm holding true to that. I'm holding true to that. I mean, um, what a Kansas City 19 and a half point favorite. I think you're in a good place for this week. <laughs> yeah. Well, see, Kyle, I've, tr- I've tried to be different from you most of the weeks because. <laughs> I, listen, I thought New England would be a, a, would be easy. And uh, who did they play? Not last yeah, week. That was. Uh, they played Denver. Yeah. And, and they were absolutely obliterated. Yeah. yeah. New England was my one snafu pick this week that I shouldn't have made that I did, but, um, you know, is what it is. And, uh, you know, we learn from it through these punishments. So, uh, <laughs> speaking of which some of the week seven takeaways, there's only one unbeaten team left and the Ravens signed Des Bryant to their practice squad. Yes, James, I'm going to ask you what, what type of impact do you think he has on this team? Very big. Yeah. It's huge because he doesn't have a number one target. I mean, Marquise Brown is great, but he's more of a down-the-field threat and, and kind of short route kind of guy and kind of a playmaker in that sense. Des Bryant is a big physical guy that's going to make those 50-50 catches, as you saw in Dallas for so many years. And I don't listen, you don't know what he's going to be because he has not played since 2017, but he's a way better option than what they have now, Marquise Brown, Willie Sneed. I know they love to run their tight ends, 
But it also be really interesting to see how they work him into the offense, considering they're a team that doesn't throw the football. Like Lamar, Lamar Jackson, he's the offense. You know, all the other guys are just there. He's he's the guy. If they lose the game, it's because of him. If they win the game, it's because of him. It's not really because of anybody else. So to work Des Bryant into this offense, it's going to be interesting. How John? Um, it's John Harbaugh, right? Yes. Yes. John yeah. Harbaugh works Des Bryant, who hasn't played a game of football in three years into an offense in which they don't really throw the football. Yeah. But he's definitely well, he's blocking a lot. He's going to have to be good at blocking. I don't know if that's what he wants to be doing coming back, but I don't, that, the, the Ravens are on the ball a ton. I don't even know who's starting for them at running back this week because now Gus Edwards, J.K. Dobbins, and Mark Ingram, like I don't trust any of them for fantasy football purposes. I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't even entertain the idea of Mark Ingram anymore. I think he's over the hill at this point. Oh, I think yeah. we've seen uh, the best of him. But speaking of running backs who have really struggled, hot take time on review and preview. Ezekiel Elliott is washed. Ezekiel no. Elliott leads uh, the NFL in fumbles among all running backs. And he is – I have to take my glasses off to read this, guys. Sorry. He is the only person uh, in the NFL to – well, actually, he leads the NFL in drops and quarterback hits allowed. Um, is Zeke on the decline? And I just want to say yeah. one thing. We saw this poor play even when Dak was healthy. The the offensive line is just is just terrible. I know we as Giants fans complain about our offensive line all the time, but the Dallas Dallas's offensive line literally went from a perennial offensive line to literally probably bottom three of the entire league in a matter of less than a year. Losing Travis Frederick, I think they just lost Zach Martin. They lost Tyron Smith for the year. I mean, it, it can't get any worse for them. Laleo Collins is done for the year as well. I mean, they literally lost. Everybody, everybody. And I think that's why Zeke is having such poor problems production-wise. The fumbling thing, that's got to stop. That has nothing to do with the offensive line. That's just that's you know, yeah. that, that's that's him. But in terms of production and what he's putting up yard-wise, getting into the end zone, I mean, that that's faulty upon the offensive line. Gabe, so I got to ask you, New England has scored 12 or fewer points in three straight games. Is this an overreaction or is this a legit concern that the New England dynasty has officially crumbled? Well, it's definitely not an overreaction. Uh, They're not going to make the playoffs this year. And people are going to start losing their jobs in the organization. Remember remember this. Week entering between week seven and week eight, where the Patriots stand after week seventeen, will they be there? Will they be a sneak in team? It's it's hard to believe with with uh, that how that division shaping up with the Dolphins being good now. It's I don't I hope honestly I hope his son Bill Belichick I hope he gets a coaching job somewhere or he takes over the the Patriots job head coach because I don't see Bill Belichick now with this going on. I don't think Bill Belichick's going to go to another organization. I think he's going to retire soon. I don't want to, you know, presume anything, but I think his time is is going to come to an end. It's going to be on his terms, though. Mm-hmm. So, I agree. I think 
that New England is headed in the wrong direction, but they remember they are missing a lot of guys this year, and I don't think it'll be too much longer until they're relevant again. I mean, they're still relevant now. It's early in the year. They've only played six games. But uh, moving on to week eight, and this is going to be our last uh, few minutes here on the show. We look at all the games this week. We have the Falcons and the Panthers tomorrow on Thursday night football. We have the Giants and the Bucks on Monday night football. Week eight's probably going to be a snooze fest because you have three NFC East teams playing in primetime games. That includes the Cowboys and the Eagles on Sunday night football. Uh, what is your game of the week, guys? I want I want a game of the week from each of you that you're like, whoa, I cannot wait to watch this game. And I can't pick it. <laughs> a little, little bit of a surprise for me, just probably nobody's even thinking of this one. But I'm really excited to see how Tua Togovailoa plays in his first NFL start. Like, I'm really excited to see what this guy is able to do. I, I don't know if it was the smartest decision to put an injury-prone guy up against Aaron Donald in his first start, but I'm excited to see what he's able to accomplish in his NFL debut at Hard Rock Stadium. So he's got the fan home crowd behind him. I think it's going to be a good game. I don't, I don't think Miami's going to win, but I think it's going to be a good game, though. Gabe? I got to go with the Vikings Packers, of course. Uh, but I think another game that I'm thinking a lot about is the um, Saints-Bears game. Saints-Bears is probably – if uh, because then we'll, re- we'll really know watching the Saints-Bears game, which team is for real. We use that cliche all the time, like this game is going to tell you which team is for real. But this is really that week where it's like who is – we don't know. And Michael Thomas, if he plays, he's probably not going to be fully healthy. But Chicago, they're pretty much fully healthy. They should be they, – they have no excuse. They really don't have an excuse. And it's just – and the Saints don't have a great pass rush. So this is a game where the Bears have an, an edible offensive uh, chance here. <laughs> really good point. We'll see if the Bears can improve to 6-2 and two, or if the Saints can continue to uh, – Win their fourth game in a row. James, you are next. Steelers and Ravens. Yeah. Five nine. and one, six and oh. Yeah. And who do you have winning that? I'm curious. I think I put Baltimore on the quick. Yeah. Baltimore will hand Pittsburgh their first loss of the season this week. By the way, since it is Halloween season, make sure, uh, you know, you go check out that game. I know Lamar Jackson last year had a nice video in regards to his Harry Potter costume, which was very interesting to watch. Uh, since you took that, my game that I'm going to pick, uh, Colts-Lions, because this is the first time that you can say that you really don't know if the Colts uh, can beat the Lions on the road like this. The Lions have lost their last six home games, but they've won two games in a row. Something's got to give here, boys. Look, I I get it. Stafford's been hot the last couple of weeks, and we may not trust Phillip Rivers, but the Colts have a damn good line. They have a really good rookie running back and a fantastic defense. Darius Leonard is back as well. Uh, so I'm really excited to see this game. I do think the Colts pull it out. Uh, another game to look out for, too, is San Francisco at Seattle. Mm-hmm. I think – Seattle has proved that they're vulnerable and San Francisco is hot right now. So I, that's another game to watch out for. Uh, but guys, any, any final thoughts? I think the uh, Vikings start their playoff run this Sunday. Oh, You're going to see the bears come on, lose. Come on, You're going to see the lions lose. 
And if the Vikings win, the Packers lose too. It starts this Sunday. All right. We'll see. Yeah. So right. we we are for sure that Gabe will be on the NFC North naughty list uh, next <laughs> week when the Packers win. 37-34, Vikings win. Yeah, you know, you, you – that's that's gutsy right there. That is real gutsy. But uh, guys, thank you all for joining tonight. Really appreciate it. And tune in tomorrow to Big Blue Avenue. I hope you all get to watch that with uh, Hank and I. We're going to be talking with uh, Gabe, your friend, Sam Cardona. She is the host of the Girl Who Talks Sports podcast to talk all things New York Giants, preview the Tampa Bay Bucks game, and analyze the Jones catch and the Ingram drop. A couple other things, too. Trade deadline rumors. I'm really looking forward to that. Um, And make sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel at Review and Preview Sports. James and I got into a uh, clicking battle, battle, clicking battle there. But James, (laughs) thank you very much for the display. And Gabe is laughing because I do that with him once every show I am producing for him on the North Pole. But thank you all for joining us tonight. On behalf of Gabe Flayton, Kyle Russo, and James Montefusco, I'm Tom Scavetta saying so long. You've been watching Review and Preview here on Facebook Live. Good night, everybody.